Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Father God, thank you for your mercy and grace toward us. Thank you that we step into this space today, not because we're the hungry holy ones, but because you are. You're the God that loves us. You're the God that seeks us. You are the God who knows what is best for us. You are the pursuing one for your kingdom and your will on earth as it is in heaven through all of history in every part of the world, including right now and right here. So we bow to you. We give you our friends who are at home, online with us, in their living rooms or wherever they are. Lord, we ask that you would come and meet them as you would meet us. You would open their hearts to you. You would open our hearts to you. You would give us ears to hear your voice and in your mercy and grace you would speak through your word today among us. Amen. Ross, you can just leave this slide up until I tell you to change it because I'm throwing out my first page to just share something different. No. (laughs) Um, Years ago, no, yeah, unplanned. Um, I just want to start by reminding us why we're in this study. We're in a study called All Things New. Uh, From Revelation 21, verse 5, Jesus' words, Behold, I'm making all things new. It's a study on the gospel, on change, and everyday sanctification. And we're going slow in this. Some of you wanted four weeks ago for me just to get down to brass tacks and get practical. Today we're going to get practical. But we haven't gotten that practical until today. And here's why. Um, One story stands out to me that is, I think, descriptive of many. But I remember years ago, I don't know when this was. But it's a story I've lived out many times. A friend comes, someone in the congregation, and says, I am struggling, I am broken, I am a wreck, I'm dealing with an addiction, and I need help. And I remember specifically one time in a moment like that, uh, a friend coming, struggling with addiction to pornography, and they said, I need help. And, and so we went together to the Christian bookstore and we bought this book uh, by Joe Dallas called The Game Plan, 30-day plan to overcoming things. Started reading it together as a conversation guide to us and some practical wisdom. It was a good book, actually, although I haven't read it in like 10 years, so I might need to reread before I re-endorse But I remember getting about three chapters into that book and saying, okay, there's some help here. This is good. But my goodness, my friend needs more than this. We need more than this. When we come to those places in our lives where we become awake, alive, sensitive, hungry for change in the deep places of our souls, it's not just about learning a couple practical how-tos. We need the deep work of God in us, our hearts, our minds, our habits, our desires uh, need to be brought into the light of God's grace. 
and uh, to be changed in deeper things than that what you and I can just apply by reading a chapter or two and saying, okay, tomorrow, okay. So that's why we're going slow. That's why we're in this, because we want that deep change. I, I love how I was reading something this week about how God changes us, and the author talked about how God, what God is after is not just a couple new things, but the deep kind of holiness that is real, that is real in our souls at 10 o'clock on Saturday night when we're out with all of our friends or we're completely by ourselves and no one knows. On Tuesday morning when we're at work and the pressures are firing against us and that person, yet again, is flipping all of our switches. That's what Jesus is after, not just to secure our eternal destiny, though that is a, a gift of grace we should never minimize, and I think I have done it at times. God's embrace, forgiveness of our sin, our eternal settledness in the heart of God matters so much, but God himself wants not just to see us endure this life until we experience his glory, but to taste something of his renewing grace in these days. That's what this series is about. All things new. And this morning we're gonna come back to a text that we've covered before, about six years ago, but many of you weren't in the room, and even if you were, I think we need it. I need it. I kind of wonder if I should come back and re-preach this text every year. <laughs> um, I have felt this has been God's word for me yet again. And it starts with, Ross, we'll resume uh, on slide four, I think. Who are you? And what's your story? Those are the questions I want us to dig into today. They're really one question in the sense that who we are is shaped by our story. When I meet people and have the time, it's not like, you know, just racing past. I've come to love to ask instead of, hey, tell me about yourself. Tell me your story. Because it's in the details of someone's story that we really get to know them, who they are, what's shaped who they are. It's in the details of my story that you get to know who I am, the man that I am today, for better and for worse, right? When you just answer the question, tell me about yourself, we tend to just do the high points. You tell your story, maybe there's more to be said. And our, our story shapes us. I, I see this all the time. I can think of so many moments where a friend maybe has done something dramatic, something drastic, something seemingly out of nowhere. And you feel that, like, whoa, where did that come from? But then you step back and you reflect on their story or you dig in and ask about what's gone on over the years, their childhood, their family, what happened, what didn't happen, the last season of life, the church they were a part of for the last decade, what happened, what didn't happen. And you start to see that what's going on in the present is not completely out of nowhere. It actually makes a bit of sense. Often the seeds of today have been sown somewhere in our past and we've Maybe we've ignored those seeds or we've mowed over them or we've quietly watered them, knowingly or unknowingly. Much of our lives, our ways of thinking, our ways of behaving and how we make sense of it all on some level makes sense in the light of our story. Does that make sense as I say that? Can you see this in your own life, in the life of others around you? Who we are shapes how we live. 
Or put it the other way, how we live flows out of who we are, who we perceive ourselves to be. I want to linger on this one moment longer before I explain why this matters to us today, though I hope it becomes just obvious. And forgive me if some of you remember this analogy. Imagine you are a teenager walking into 7-Eleven, which I think was my happy space when I was a teenager. Um, So maybe down the road here, corner of Feltham and Shelburne, and as you pour your 5,000 milliliter Dr. Pepper Slurpee for the second time that day, you notice out of the corner of your eye a wallet sitting on the ground, shuffled to the edge of the aisle. What do you do? What do you do? What would you do, honestly? I suspect most of you would do one of three things. One, you would pick it up and walk it to the cashier. Two, you would pick it up. Hey, somebody lose their wallet? And if not, you'd walk it to the cashier. Three, you'd ignore it. Focus on your Slurpee. Hope the right person finds it. But you probably wouldn't shove it in your backpack, would you? Why not? Because you're not a thief. That's not who you are. That's not your story. And so that's not what you would do. You with me? But imagine you are a thief, as I kind of was when I was 13. Not of wallets, but like the kind of things that could fit in your pocket with no one noticing, the cashier in particular. I have stories of my repentance, let it be said. I drove back to Bella's Fair Mall when I was 16 years old to do a circuit of repentance to stores that I had stolen from when I was 14. So if any of you by hearing this go, well, Scott did it, you also need to know what I did in repentance. But imagine you are a thief. You have a habit, a practice, a story, of slipping things in your backpack or all those pockets in your Tega jacket back in the day. That was me. And you see that wallet on the floor, what do you do? You might pick it up and slip it in your bag. Why? Because that's what you do, because that's who you are, because that's your story. That's how you perceive yourself. How you live your life is shaped by who you are, by who you perceive yourself to be by what you understand to be your story. So what's your story? What story is writing you? I say all this this morning because the Apostle Paul seems to understand this well, as does Jesus. And this knowledge shapes how and what Paul writes to the Christians in Colossae, in Ephesus, in Rome, in so many places. And not only that, not only does Paul know and understand this, but he knows something more, something that many of us desperately need to know and to wrap our hearts and minds around again and again. And it's this, that in Christ, in the grace of the gospel, we are given a new story. Because of this, you and I don't have to live to keep living out of our old story. We can actually live in a new way because we have a new story. So what is this new story? Thank you for asking. Listen with me to what Paul says to the Christians in Colossae and to us about 
us, about you and me, about everyone who is in Christ. Listen, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, verse 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God, enemies in your minds engaged in evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Hear what Paul is saying about you. If you are in Christ, Paul is describing you in these ways. Chapter two, verse nine. In Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Chapter two, verse 11 and 12. Your sinful nature was put off, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. 2, verse 13 and 14. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sin, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. 2, verse 20. You died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Chapter three, verse one, you have been raised with Christ. And lastly, chapter three, verse three, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, so then, since then, everything, all the practical counsel Paul is about to dive into flows out of this. Then the grace of Christ, not only are our sins forgiven, amen, but we have been given a new story. And not just any story, but we have been drawn into the very story of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus' story, his life, his death, his resurrection is now my story. It's yours. It's mine. It's a story of all who are in Christ. You died with Christ, Paul says. You have been raised with Christ, Paul says. I love how Marianne May Thompson, a wise theologian, describes it. She writes, those who are transferred from one kingdom to another, Colossians 1 verse 13, not only find themselves living in a new kingdom, but also find their lives implotted into a new narrative, that of Jesus himself. This, according to the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, is what the gospel does to us. Through the grace of the gospel, all of us, all who are in Christ, are implotted into the narrative of Jesus. His story, his life, his death, his resurrection is now written over our story, over yours. Stu, Nigel, Claudia, Ashley, Ben, Woody, Doug. If you are in Christ, then Jesus' story, his life, his death, his resurrection has been written over your story and becomes your story. 
So much so that the old descriptors, the old dividers, the old things that would have made us kind of say, Meh, what about them, distance ourselves from other people, now no longer matter. As Paul says at the end of this text, Colossians 3 verse 11, here, that is in Christ, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, peninsula people, West Shore people, government, but all, Christ is all and is in all. Okay, if you are in Christ, then Jesus' story is your story, which is beautiful, amen, awesome, but so what? So what? So what? Why does this matter? It matters because how we live flows out of who we are what we believe and know to be our story when we walk into 7-Eleven and we see the wallet that no one else sees. Colossians 3 verse one. Since then, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is now your story, so set your heart on it. Set your mind on it. It's easy to read this part of Colossians 3 as just Paul warming up to get to the goods of verse 5 and following. But what Paul says here at the opening of Colossians 3 is so important because without this, our endeavor and desire to live our lives in Christ will be hijacked again and again by our own minds by our own understanding and perception of ourselves, by the lies that we continue to believe about ourselves. Which is why, bless you, which is why when my friend and I read that book all those years ago with these practical tips on what to do to hem in your behavior, I knew it wasn't going to work because if it is built on a self-perception that is still full of lies, those endeavors will quickly fall off. We need to hear and heed, obey Paul's counsel here to set and reset our minds and hearts regularly on who we are in Christ and the story that is now ours through the gospel. This is why we, God in his wisdom brings us together as a church every week, not just once in a while when we feel we need it, to help us together reset our minds, our hearts on who we are in Christ and the story that is now ours. Think of this like knowing where you are when you are looking at a map. If you can't locate yourself properly, that map is useless to you, right? If you're out strolling one of our beautiful parks in the woods, up island on the west shore, and you're holding the map, but you don't know where you are on it, might as well use it to start the fire. It's useless. So set your mind and heart on where the gospel has placed you. This is one of the tasks that we have to set our hearts and mind on where the gospel has placed us, which is in Christ, in his story, that his story is now our story. But that's not all. In Colossians 3 verse 5, Paul then calls us to live now in this story to live our lives in alignment with Jesus in two very specific ways. And today I'm gonna to dig into the first 
And two weeks from now, I'll come back to the second. Colossians 3, verse 5 and following. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. In other words, these used to be the natural outworking of your story. You were cut off from the life of God, oriented away from him. And so these were your ways. But they're not anymore. Because that's not your story. Not anymore. Because you died with Christ to that way of life. Verse eight. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since... You have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. According to Paul, at the heart of your life now, if you are in Christ, at the heart of your life now in Christ is the death of Jesus. And your, our having died with him to our old life of sin, our self-serving, self-pleasing, self-protecting ways. That was our way outside of Christ. But that old way of living was buried with Jesus. And it's now dead to us. It has no part in our life. And it doesn't need to. Because Jesus has freed us from the enslaving power of sin, not its presence, but its power, and he has given us a new story, his story. We are now new persons in Christ with a new power at work in us, Jesus, by his spirit. So why do we keep, if that is the truth, as Paul declares, and New Testament declares to us endlessly, if that is the case, why do we keep living out of our old story? Why do you why do we keep going back to cultivating, slipping into, turning again to seek life in things that we know kill us and others, our relationships, our souls? Well, some of us, it is because we have not really understood what Christ has done for us, that we've been given a new story. And so we've just kept living out of the only story we've ever known, hoping that one day we'll die and it will be over. But friends, According to Paul, inspired by the Spirit, you have died in Christ. That's not your story anymore. Some of us haven't really known this. For others of us, we know the story maybe, but we don't believe it actually makes any difference. Maybe we've tried and failed to make progress, and so we've given up the battle because it feels hopeless. But underneath it all, for all of us, there's also always if we're honest, this simple reality that for all of our hunger and longing to be holy, to be done with the selfish and corrupt desires and ways of our lives, for all of our ache to be whole and holy, most often when we get down to it, we don't want to deny ourselves. We want to live out of a, another story, but we don't want to have to bear a cross. We'd be glad if it just happened. It'd be so nice if we woke up tomorrow and all these desires were gone, and then we'd be like, yeah, I'm totally in. Give me holiness. But I have to deny myself to get there. Some of us often aren't actually up to it, if we're honest. We don't want to put to death whatever belongs to our sinful nature. I know I often haven't, don't. And yet according to Paul, inspired by the Spirit, according to Jesus behind and before and in him, this is, this is the way and the only way to life 
capital L, life. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly, your sinful nature. Paul says it also in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. It's not on the slide, but I'll read it. Romans 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, Paul says. Paul's words here, inspired by the Spirit, are a bold, urgent call to action for every one of us. Which is important for us to hear because sometimes as we listen to Paul himself even, maybe even Colossians, Colossians chapter two, we hear Paul rail against rules-based Christianity, setting up just a whole list of I don't do that, I won't do that, I don't do that, I can't do that. Paul rails against that in Colossians chapter two as useless in addressing the indulgence of the flesh. It's like that book that I read years ago, though some helpful counsel. It only hems in the actions. It doesn't deal with the heart that is turned away from God. And that's what we need. And that can lead us to think, well, there's nothing for me to do. There's nothing I can do or should do. But that's not what Paul is saying. There is something we can do and must do do. As we named last Sunday, faith in Christ, following Jesus, being a Christian, living in the Spirit is not a passive matter. It isn't just let go and let God. We are, you are, I am to put to death, to rid ourselves, to put off anything and everything that belongs to our sinful nature. And in case we're tempted to be fuzzy on this, Paul gets specific, and I'm thankful he does. Not exhaustive, but specific. In other letters, he includes other things, but here in Colossians, Paul lays out two lists of the kinds of things we must put to death day after day. He lists, verse five, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Notice how Paul begins with the obvious, the visible sexual immorality. The Greek word is pornea, where we get the word porn. It's this all-encompassing biblical word that refers to any sexual relationship outside of marriage. Though in truth, as many people know, even within a marriage, there can be sexual immorality. It is not just for those who are unmarried. But then from there, he delves deeper into what we allow to go on in our minds in our hearts, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. As others have pointed out, in this first list, Paul is describing not simply sexual sins, but ways that we take from others in an attempt to please ourselves. All of them are a taking, a grasping, sometimes increasingly voraciously. All of them are ways that we take from others to please ourselves. And these ways, whether sexual or otherwise, are ways that must be put to death because in Christ, they are no longer our ways. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, in the story you once lived, but no longer because that's not who you are because you died with Christ to all of that. But he doesn't stop there. He calls us to get ruthless with, to rid ourselves of anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from our lips. In contrast to the former list, this describes ways that, sorry, the former list describes ways we take from others. This list seems to describe ways that we lash out. We lash out at others to harm them, whether to elevate ourselves or to protect ourselves. 
Again, Paul calls us to rid ourselves of all such things as these. It's intriguing to me how often in the Christian community, churches, communities can embrace one of these lists and not the other. How churches that are full of anger, rage, malice, slander, gossip, quietly cannot care about it, but make all the emphasis on sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. How other churches and communities, us, can decide, no, we don't really care about this anymore, but all of our energy is on, no, we shouldn't be that. Paul puts all of it on the list because none of it is in Christ. None of it is a part of our story now. All of this we have died to, Paul says. All of these are ways of living and relating that are not Christ's ways, and he is now our life. His ways are now our ways. And we need to name again, and this, this is no passive matter. It is not as though when we come to faith, the Spirit just takes over and we just get to go along for a new ride. As John Stott has said, holiness is not a condition we drift into. It is something that only becomes real in our lives, in your life, in your relationships, in your heart, as you learn, as we learn and choose to walk in the Spirit, learn and choose to cultivate the ways of Christ, to turn from these ways and seek the ways of Christ. Not, not as we float after a great rousing time of singing, not as we drift, but we're called to walk, to walk, to take real steps, Monday afternoon steps, Saturday night steps, Sunday morning steps, in agreement with Jesus, in partnership with the Spirit. Just as our new story involves Jesus, involved Jesus choosing and denying himself and dying for us, you and I are called and invited now in Christ to deny ourselves, to actively put to death, to turn from, to say a defiant no again and again to the sin that so easily entangles us. And don't let Paul's language confuse you here. I think we often are thrown off by this call to put to death because there is a way in which it sounds final. And most of us, we tried, and it wasn't very final. <laughs> it was yesterday, and here we are again. And so we can kind of say, oh, I don't really get this. I don't know how to do this, and so we don't. But I don't think that's what Paul is after here. This is just Paul's way of saying what Jesus says to his disciples, calling them, calling us to deny ourselves. Luke 9, verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. We're called to put our sin to death daily, which means again and again, which is and always has been the essential way of discipleship, the way of life to Christ through death, through Jesus' death and now through ours putting to death whatever belongs to our sinful nature again and again. So if your old way was to shut off your brain because you're tired or you're lonely or you're stressed, you're anxious, and so just, let's, I'll just shut off my brain, I'll kill some time by scrolling that app or that website with no regard for what you're taking in, it's okay, I'm just killing time. I mean, they're short videos. 
Or if your old way was to head for your phone or open the window to talk to the neighbor across the fence, no one does that anymore, or uh, straight to social media, which is the proverbial open the window to talk to the neighbor across the fence, to spread the news of someone else's stupidity. Or your old way was to twist the story in conversation to recast yourself as the victim or as the hero when the truth is maybe a mix. Or your old way was to fixate on the sins and failings of others and never acknowledge your own, even to yourself. Or your old way was to flirt with and court temptation while mouthing a prayer for holiness. Then Paul says it's time to wake up to the story that is yours and to actively choose to turn from the ways of the old story, to actively choose to run from, to reorder your days if needed. And it probably is to reorder your days away from these things and to run to Christ to learn new ways from him, his life-giving ways, because these are not your ways anymore, because they are not Jesus' ways. This is not who you are anymore. Your life is now hidden in Christ, in him. So you don't have to live that way. And not only that, but why would we? Why would you? When these ways are death to you, right? This is something God continues in grace to teach me. That sin isn't just a less than ideal option. That sin isn't just second best or unfortunate. No, sin leads to death. That's what scripture tells us. And that's what our experience reveals, affirms to us. Sin leads to death. It always does. Maybe in subtle ways, but over time, it is no longer subtle. It destroys us, our souls, our minds, our relationships, our bodies, our families, our communities. Sin kills us. Read Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 if you need. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Galatians chapter 6, 7 and 8. God will not be mocked. Those who sow to please the sinful nature will reap destruction. I'll be honest, years ago, I had to memorize that passage, Galatians 6, 7, 8, to retrain my mind to understand that my sin is not just unfortunate. It kills me. If I sow to please the sinful nature, I will reap destruction. Those who sow to please the spirit will reap life. Life. So we really have two options. As Christians, as people who have been chosen predestined for holiness, adopted, forgiven. We still have two options. You have two options today as you look towards whatever your plan is for the day or for the week or whatever is just before you. Either we can let sin continue to ruin, destroy, fester, and kill us and others, or we can actively put it to death. So how, practically how? What does this look like? Well, let me just share a few things that I have learned again and again that help me as I live in this story myself. First of all, it needs to be said that you can't fight, turn from, or put to death a sin that you can't or won't name. So part of putting to death requires naming it to God, to yourself, and maybe to another. 
And for many of us who deal with pride, which is all of us, <laughs> that counsel to name it to another can be particularly hard, but helpful. Jonathan Dodson, in his short booklet, Fight Clubs, it's actually a PDF of this that's available on our website under the resource page on pornography and the fight for freedom. You can go there and find it. It's really good. Jonathan Dod Dodson's booklet called Fight Clubs. He talks about the need to regularly answer four questions. What, how, when and where, and why. I had a walk with a friend around Elk Lake yesterday. That's a long walk uh, if you're not real expecting it. We talked about these questions. What is the temptation? What is it? Name it. What is it? What is the battle for you? What is the sin that so easily entangles for you? How? How do you experience this temptation? Three, when and where do you most often experience this temptation? And four, why? It's the hardest question, as important as the others. What's the lie you're believing? What's the lie that you're believing this will give you? What's the lie you're believing that makes this sin so attractive and makes turning from it so unrealistic, undesirable, whatever? What, how, when and where, why? Another practical thing, this is really helpful for me, I often come back to this, is to think honestly about the ways that I am allowing or maybe even feeding sin and temptation in my life. All while maybe I'm, I'm praying that I won't fall into sin. I'm sure all of us have done this. We have walked down a path that we know leads to death. And as we're walking it fully, maybe even joyfully walking down this path and saying, God, help me not to fall into sin. And we're walking the path. We're inviting friends even. Like it's in our daytimer. Like it is a path we know and we're doing it. We're going down this path towards the red light of death. <laughs> and we're saying, oh, Jesus, make me holy. And to write, brilliantly says, to put something to death, you must cut off its lines of supply. It is futile and self-deceiving to bemoan one's inability to resist the last stage of a temptation when earlier stages have gone by unnoticed or even eagerly welcomed. He goes on, every Christian has the responsibility before God to investigate the lifelines of whatever sins are defeating them personally and to cut them off without pity. Better that than have them eventually destroy you. Whenever I find myself caught in the grip of the sin that so easily entangles me, I have to ask myself, where have I been making or allowing little compromise? Where have I been Ignoring, mowing over, or watering the seeds of temptation. Where have I been? You know what I'm saying. Because it is hard to turn from sin and temptation when it's on level five. But what if we close the door at level one? What if we took the time to make sense of the entry point of our familiar 
ways. And we did all we could to remove the door and plaster it over in the name of Jesus. Asking God, as we take a proactive step in partnership with the Spirit, to do a work in our hearts and change us. To renew our minds, to help us see that sin as death, and to see God's goodness, God's holiness as goodness, as life. Because here's the reality, if we're not ruthless with our sin, it will be ruthless with us. John Owen, the Puritan, famously said, be killing sin, be killing sin lest it be killing you. Many of us know this by experience. So let me close with a couple questions. What story is writing you? If you are in Christ, what story are you letting shape your days? What of your old life, your old story, are you still allowing to guide and define you? What fallen habits, ways, desires have you quietly settled to live with that need to be put to death? What is one harmless habit? I say it with quotes, air quotes. Harmless. You do it twice, right? Harm with each syllable. But honestly, think this through. What is one harmless habit in your daily life that isn't actually harmless? That the Spirit is inviting you to put to death today and then again tomorrow. Because that's the call to, in Christ, say yes, take his hand and take steps with him. Aligned with Jesus today, dead to sin, alive to God, and then again tomorrow, and then again tomorrow. Trusting that the Spirit is sufficient to lead and empower us to honor Christ each day, and then again tomorrow. So what is God saying to you today? Why did Jesus get you in this room today? And how do you need to respond? How will you respond to what he's saying? Because that's what matters this morning, right? Sermons don't change anybody. It's hearing and responding to God's voice, maybe through the preaching of his word, that changes us. Let's pray. Living God, thank you for loving us enough to speak truth into our hearts and lives, our real lives, to speak wise needed counsel through your word to us. What a gift, God, that you not only have come and revealed your holiness and made a way for our forgiveness of our sin, but you have spoken your will to us and given us your spirit and given us your community and called to us in love today, to me, to us, Lord, where we are. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we bow to you and we ask in your mercy you would not let us walk away from what you have said to us today. 
In your mercy, God, would you lead us to our knees, heart and soul, mind and strength, in this space, back home, wherever we are. Lead us to the, those places that would become our place on our knees before you. That we might be a people who live in your story, who live in it, who are alive in you. By your grace.